The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of October 4th, 2021. The 2021 regular season is over, and the Chicago White Sox finish on a high note winning six of their last seven games to end the season with a final record of 93 and 69. In this episode, we shift to postseason mode. The Chicago White Sox get ready for the American League Divisional Series against the Houston Astros. We'll break down that matchup, highlighting what the keys will be for the White Sox to win that series. And we make our postseason picks before answering your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The regular season is over, and the White Sox finish the season on a high note. Yeah, this definitely feels more real this time, doesn't it, compared to last year? It does. And even Lucas Giolito mentioned in his post-game conference after Saturday's game that it's night and day compared to how the White Sox finished this season to last year because last year not only did you have the debacle in Cleveland Mm -hmm. but they didn't even play up they didn't even play well against the Chicago Cubs that final series uh, of the season like they were just not not interested or just kind of out of gas and maybe the pitching ran out of gas as we saw in Oakland but the way that they beat Cincinnati and the way they beat Detroit and the offense clicking until the very final day, but I think weather had played a factor. And even Saturday, they were playing very boring baseball. It looked like they were mailing it in. Three runs in the seventh. Yoan McCott in the bottom of the eighth inning, hitting that two-run homer. I was in the stands on Friday and Saturday. The White Sox fan base is ready for the postseason. It was by far the most electric atmosphere I have been in at Guarantee Rate Field since Game 1 of the 2005 American League Championship Series. Uh, Mm. And, yeah, it feels a lot different. Like, this team is playing with a lot more confidence that we have seen 
from this unit since the All-Star break, which, to be honest, they, they've been sputtering for a couple of months. And to have this type of week, winning six out of seven, I think puts this team in a great mindset and ready for the Houston Astros. And I think the uh, to-do list or the wish list that we had, or at least I had, going into the final week of the season was pretty much met. Um, you can quibble here and there, like Adam Engel didn't quite show that he was all the way back, like capable of starting three games in a row or five games in a row, if that happens to be the best matchup. But otherwise, we saw Ryan Tapera come back, throw two outings, one of them really good. Uh, Craig Kimbrell did what he could, although he didn't quite get that ideal eighth inning situation we would have liked to see him get tested with. Uh, you know, Lynn Giolito, Cease, all nailing their last appearances. Um you know, having, you know, Luis Robert looking good, having Juan Moncada looking good, having Tim Anderson finishing over 300, having Abreu hitting his 30th homer, pretty much everything fell into place that you wanted to see. So yeah, it's, uh, I was on the score 670 on Saturday with uh, Steve Rosenblum and Mark Grody and, you know, talking about just how we feel about them entering the postseason. I think the way they've done it this week in the last three series, basically, you know, it's hard to find something to find fault with aside from like, you know, the team's general weaknesses, like they might hit too many ground balls or, uh, you know, they, they might, uh, you know, Craig Kimbrell might falter or Michael Kopech might falter, but just having the personnel all there and ready to be deployed at or near hundred percent basically takes care of all the extraneous worry. And now it's just a matter of players showing up. The only concern is I don't think Dallas Keuchel out of the bullpen is going to be a good idea. If he's on the roster, that's fine. He's on the roster. I, I, I'm citing that it would be a great divisional series if Dallas Keuchel pitches zero innings, Jim. Or if he pitches two because the White Sox are winning by 11. But <laughs> Okay, I mean, but I'll even, take but that. <laughs> even then, I would say that Keuchel pitching poorly on Saturday helps like it's just it's clarifying do you like it, think it, though they're going to honestly leave him off the roster because right now I think Tony's going to have him on the roster I'm skeptical I would say like it feels like 40 percent okay uh that they would leave him off like so if I had to wager I would say they'd keep him on just because you know if basically I try to a lot of decisions I try to assess like imagine them happening and then imagine my reaction afterwards. And if Keuchel were on the roster, I'd say, yeah, that, of course. Uh, whereas uh, if he was left off, I'd say, huh, bold. I like it. Yeah. I'd be pleasantly surprised. So that's why I would say 40%, but it, you know, the baseball reasons are all there. And I think Keuchel with the 5.28 ERA um, you know, this year, he knows he didn't pitch well. He knows he's the fifth best fifth best starter on the the uh roster in the rotation and it's only a five game series like he the, the math's all there the math's all against him it, it's not like it's a matter of like Dylan Cease like showing up and having three good starts but having a five ERA as well and then who are you going to go with <laughs> like everybody else has proven it basically the entire season whereas Keuchel has really tailed off so yeah, that's, I think, the, the where I'm at with that. But I, I think having him struggle the way that he did uh, just helps. I think it's better than having like an, you know, a mediocre, scoreless inning where he walks one and gives up a single but ultimately survives. Yeah, I, I should clarify. I don't think 
it's a good idea to have Keiko in the postseason roster. I like the way that Ryan Burr has been throwing. I know that he could add some tra- traffic on the base paths, but he still does a very good job of inducing ground balls, hit at where the defense is actually playing, and is able to get that double play, and he's doing a much better job of striking out batters. You're not getting that with Keuchel. Like, even the first runner that scored on him, that was a fantastic play that Tim Anderson moved to his right. And I just recall telling everyone around me uh, that was sitting in Section 108, like, wow, I can't believe Anderson actually got to that ball. It was able to make a strong enough throw that even though Abreu didn't scoop it because it was in between hops, that it was just, you know, amazing athletic feat by Anderson. And then the rails just fall off in that entire inning. And he gives up three runs at the top of the seventh and gets bailed out by the White Sox offense at the bottom of the seventh inning. And then ultimately Makata's uh, two-run homer. In the eighth inning, the White Sox still win that game. But I just, you're right. If the White Sox are up 13-2 to and it is the eighth inning, yeah, go to Dallas Keuchel if he's on your roster. But just know, I still think he's given up three to four runs in that eighth and ninth inning. And uh, he's, there's a lot of questions about Dallas Keuchel going to the 2022 season. I, I think that's fair, although I think the question's pretty simple. Or like the, the answer's pretty simple. Just go into, uh, go into the uh, season with Keuchel being the fifth starter. And whatever you get, you get. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. He won't be the highest paid pitcher in the starting rotation. That'll be Lance Lynn, thanks to the contract extension. But yeah, I think, you know, Lynn looked ready to go. Giolito looks ready to go. Uh, You called it. The White Sox were not going to push any of the starting pitchers into the 80 pitch mark because they pulled Dylan Cease pretty early on Sunday. Uh, We talked about Carlos Rodon in the previous episode on Sox Machine Live after a start against Cincinnati. I I feel good about this White Sox team uh, a lot better than maybe two weeks ago where it was just, Hey, they had a great game. And then two clunkers back to back for them to have sustained success and the way that they were winning games, especially during their six game winning streak. Uh, and they're facing, you know, the upstart, you know, Detroit Tigers. They're not terrible. The Tigers have been playing above 500 balls since May 1st and Cincinnati finished above 500 this year. I feel a lot more confident about the White Sox heading to the postseason. I agree. So for Major League Baseball as a whole, so the White Sox finishing 93 and 69, uh, there was planned chaos on the very final day. And I don't know about you, Jim. I, I had my tablet up and uh, went to MLB Network. And I watched a lot more MLB Network than I did NFL Red Zone this past Sunday. And I got to say, it, it was great theater, especially what was going on in New York and Washington, D.C., between the Red Sox and Nationals and the Toronto Blue Jays and in Seattle as Mariner fans were still hopeful that maybe the Mariners could pull off the miracle. At the end, we're still getting Yankees and Red Sox in the wild card. Mm -hmm. How did you feel and what were your thoughts as far as watching everything transpire on Sunday? It's disappointing um, just because there's no baseball on Monday and it seemed like there's at least going to be a decent chance for one game, whether it was the Giants and Dodgers or whether it was going to be the Blue Jays and Yankees or Blue Jays and Red Sox. Like uh, the Mariners are pretty much down immediately. 
which was a shame because I don't know if you saw the clips of the Mariners broadcasters, the radio and TV guys. Uh, I did. The Mariners did a nice job. Yeah, it was a, uh, I, I, I embedded them in the tweets in Sunday morning's post about the potential for tiebreakers. And they had the uh, a camera trained on uh, Dave Sims, the TV guy, and Rick Riz, the uh, radio guy. And just their call of Mitch Hanniger's go-ahead single. And that was awesome. <laughs> it was just, uh, I've never seen... Uh, I don't think I've ever seen broadcasters shown like that. I've seen like quick clips like of Hawk and Benetti and such over the years, but just the watching them stand up throughout and gesturing with their hands <laughs> like, uh, it, in, in, in trying to urge the action of body English. That was something. So I became more of a Mariner sympathizer or, 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 or supporter from that point on. But you know, I, was, I thought the Blue Jays had the best shot at it just because um, one, I thought they were the strongest team of the bunch. Uh, I, I think they were probably limited by having played in Florida and Buffalo because when you saw how they played in Toronto, I think just having the value of having an actual home, uh, you might, might have been uh, yeah, just underappreciated until we saw how they looked in Toronto. But they looked like the best uh, team of the bunch and the scariest. And so I was disappointed that the season didn't last like three more days because I think they would have gotten in based on how they finished the season, how strongly looked pitching wise and uh, uh, just the lineup, the, the run differential, the, the, their run creation abilities. So that's, I think, what's most unfortunate because the Yankees are frustrating to watch, just kind of annoying. And uh, the Red Sox, kind of the same thing. And when they play each other, I guess the good news is they're only, they can only play each other one game. <laughs> yes. Like that's, yeah, thank God, because like a seven games of that, uh, you know, five hour, nine inning games of, uh, you know, five to two uh, is just terrible baseball. It's terrible for everybody uh, besides Yankees and Red Sox fans. So uh, at least it's that at least, you know, baseball get a boost with ratings a little bit for that one game. But yeah. And if you don't want to watch it, you don't have to <laughs> You can just wait for uh, the race to take on whoever wins and, and get to it then. Yeah, and we'll be making our postseason predictions in a couple segments later in the podcast. The Blue Jays finishing 91-71 and 71 with a plus 183 run differential. Their expected win-loss record was 99-63, and 63, so they underachieved by eight games of their expected win-loss record. Meanwhile, the Yankees finished 92-70. and 70. Their expected win-loss record was 86 and 76. So if you just go based on run differential, the Blue Jays were 13 games better than the Yankees just based on run differential. But in the actual standings, the Yankees find a way to get into the postseason as they'll be heading to Boston on Tuesday for the one game wild card against the Boston Red Sox. Again, they also finished 92 and 70. And uh, I thought Marcus Simeon put it best at the when he spoke to the media after the game. Obviously, there's a lot of questions about Simeon, what he wants to do this upcoming offseason because he's a free agent. And he's definitely I think he's going to finish the top three in the MVP voting behind Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Shohei Otani. Otani is going to win the American League MVP, but just a fantastic season for Simeon. And he said that I feel like we were the best team in the American League but we were just out of time. And I think that backs up with, with, with what you were saying, Jim, is that maybe if there is a, another three-game series, the Blue Jays find a way to cause a tie or or be able to host the wild card game. But 
They just ran out of time, and the Blue Jays are out, and the Seattle Mariners, their postseason drought continues for another year. They have still not made the postseason since 2001. Uh, they have nothing to be ashamed about. 90-72 and 72 with a negative 51 run differential uh, is tremendous, and they found a way to finish second place in the American League West five games back of the Houston Astros. And just running down the, the standings in the American League Central, uh, we talked about this a couple months ago, how many teams in the American League Central have an above 500 record. One is the answer, and that's the White Sox, because Cleveland finished 80 and 82. Detroit, surprising everyone, finishing 77 and 85. Kansas City, 74 and 88, and one of the bigger surprises in all of Major League Baseball, the Minnesota Twins failing. They finished last in the American League Central at 73 and 89, 20 games back of the White Sox in the American League Central. Over in the National League, the race for the National League West went into the final day, and the San Francisco Giants uh, did not need the dramatics uh, or the theater because they whooped up on the San Diego Padres. And the Los Angeles Dodgers, Jim, won nine of their last 10 games. They won seven games in a row to end the season. They made up one game in the standings of the Giants because the Giants went eight and two in their last 10 games and the Giants finished one game ahead of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And for the betting folks, the San Francisco Giants were 40 to one to win the National League West. So if you put $5 on the Giants to win the division before the season started, you won yourself $200 uh, if you made that bet. Uh, not many people did because a lot of people would say you're throwing your money away with the with how good the Dodgers and Padres are. But here we are, Jim, talking about the NL West champion San Francisco Giants. It was really cool, and I, I think that speaks to how I feel about the regular season. Like, just I mean, this entire season does in a way. Like the fact that after 161 games, so much was undecided. And especially in the American League, like you had so many good teams. I think the National League wildcard race was pretty mediocre this year. I mean, until St. Heavy. Louis woke up. Yeah, until St. Louis woke up. And then even then, it's just like there was, you know, if you were to expand the postseason in the National League, uh, you'd just have unworthy teams involved. Like everybody who's in the postseason deserves to be there. Uh, nobody deserving is left out, I, I think is the way to put it for the National League, whereas the American League was you know, pretty top-heavy and uh, bottom-heavy, but just uh, there wasn't really much of a middle class, I think, in the American League. Uh, but with the Giants, just how awesome that second half was and how well the Dodgers played and how they just could not make up ground. And... You know, as somebody who values regular season baseball over postseason baseball and, and gets more enjoyment out of the whole idea of building for 162 games and just seeing how a team holds up over the strain of that workload versus the tournament style uh, you know, shortening and, and warping of the game uh, that takes place in October. Like, if I were a Giants fan, I don't know if you can imagine a more fun season Uh you're taking on your direct rival when you didn't expect to even be there and topping them, even though they were throwing their best at you. Like playing I think they're playing their best that they've played during their entire run as NL West champions. 
and 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 world and NL pennant winners. Like they've never played this well, and that wasn't good enough to beat the Giants over the course of 162 games. So. Yeah, I think, you know, when you think about teams like the, the Mariners, uh, you know, the 116 win Mariners and how disappointing it was when they bowed out in October, just, yeah, I, I think that's always unfortunate, unfortunate to judge a team the way they're, uh, the way they finish in October, just because I think the feat of withstanding the Dodgers for that long is way more impressive to me than, you know, winning four out of seven games in the series in October. Just, it, it's a different skill set. It's a different, um, you know, part of the team that's exercised, but I think it just, the stamina is something. It's like an ultra marathon or something like that, the way they were able to withstand uh, just the, the threat that the Dodgers posed. And then I think in the American League, the thing that's interesting to me is that with only the White Sox finishing above 500, that means that Terry Francona's uh, streak of 16 consecutive seasons finishing over 500 is over, even though he didn't uh, finish the season as manager, even though he bowed out at the end of July because of health problems. Um, I think the way that is handled is that that's still in his record. Um, yeah, I'm curious whether that's going to be the case just because, uh, uh, when he bowed out in late July, they were one game over 500 (laughs) and they finished, uh, yeah, two games under 500, I believe. So, you know, that ends his streak then if all those, uh, wins and losses still go to him instead of, uh, DeMarlo Hale. If you had the 2020 playoff format, your playoffs this year in the American League would be the one seed Rays against the eight seed Oakland A's, the Astros against the Mariners, 2 7. The White Sox as the third seed would face the six seed Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Red Sox would still face the Yankees. That would be a three game series. In the National League, the Giants would face the Padres. So the National League would have had a team under 500 make the postseason the brewers would have faced the phillies as the two verse seven the braves as the number three seed would face the cincinnati reds the number six seed and the dodgers even though they finished the game back at the giants would be the four seed and they would face the st louis cardinals still in a three-game series and i bring this up because this is back-to-back seasons with different postseason formats and i am expecting in 2022 after the new CBA, that for three straight years, we're going to have a different postseason format. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I I think in the American League, if you add an extra team and you go six teams, you still would have had the drama. Toronto's in, uh, and Seattle's still chasing. But you really don't have that drama still in the National League. And I know you are against postseason expansion. I'd like to see six but if they try to do seven or eight teams, Jim, I just think that's too many uh, after this upcoming CBA. The way that this season has ended and the way that we have seen this five-team playoff format work out where game 162 is extremely important and everybody plays at the same time, which is great theater, you're going to lose that if you go to eight teams. So I caution Major League Baseball if you're going to expand the postseason because you sold this deal to ESPN to pay you more money for television rights, I would only add one extra team and just have a six-team playoff. I, I think I'm okay with expansion once they get to 32 teams, assuming they do. I think that makes, you know, once you have even teams, 16 and 16 in each league, it makes sense to evaluate just exactly, um, 
you know, the divisions, the, the structures, whether you swap teams with, you know, um, between leagues, um, DH, everything like that. I think, you know, it's due for an overhaul and reassessment of just how, um, you know, how to reward teams for good seasons. But, you know, ultimately I, I still like there being a high bar, like, like they say about the hall of fame, like it's the, the, the prestige of the hall of fame is only as high as the, the best player out of it. And so I think when you have a good team like you know, Toronto on the outside looking in, I think that just, wow, the American League is really good. <laughs> I think that's how I look at it. Just the teams that are left playing each other, like none of these teams feel like pushovers. And if anyone went to the pennant, I will get to this in a little bit, like I would not be surprised. I think with the National League, I think it's a bit different, um, you know, especially if the Cardinals didn't turn it on and it was just a, 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 a slog for the second wild card spot. It would feel um, pretty... Lackluster. And I think the Braves too have been, you know, largely mediocre all season, or at least, you know, the best of a uh, weird division or a division we thought was going to be way better in the NL East. So that's, I, I think when you see a, uh, a league like that, the National League in 2021, that's, I think the best argument against uh, postseason because the teams are in like the Dodgers and uh, especially the Dodgers, Giants and Milwaukee, they all deserve to be there. And I think if you just add teams that just lengthen the postseason and uh, add in a, you know, another layer that prevents one of those good teams from getting all the way uh, with, you know, without them earning their way in, I think that just kind of cheapens it to me. There have been some significant injuries, especially in the National League. The Giants are without Brandon Belt, who had a terrific season for them. Devin Williams punched a wall, and that really hurts as far as the Brewers' bullpen. And then Max Muncie. Unfortunately, uh, in game 162 on a defensive play, uh, tried to reach and field the throw from the catcher. The base runner ran through his arm, and it looks like he injured his wrist. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts has already said that Max Muncy will not be available for the National League wildcard game and is very doubtful to be able to play in the divisional series. That is a big blow for the Los Angeles Dodgers, as Max Muncy has been terrific for the Dodgers. So in the National League, that's your story heading into the postseason is some really significant injuries late impacting the contenders in that league for the National League pennant. Meanwhile, you've had teams that sweat and you had a terrific finish in the American League and the American League appear to be very strong overall compared to the National League, which might be a bit top-heavy with the Giants and Dodgers. We are going to make our postseason picks later in the show, but coming up after a quick word from our sponsors, we begin our American League Divisional Series preview between the Chicago White Sox and the Houston Astros, breaking down the Astros pitching and lineups next on the Sox Machine Podcast. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Game one between the Chicago White Sox and the Houston Astros for the American League Divisional Series will be on Thursday, October 7th. Friday, October 8th will be Game 2. Games 1 and 2 will be played at Houston. Games 3 and 4 will be played in Chicago. That will be Sunday, October 10th, and if necessary, Monday, October 11th. And if it does go to Game 5, that will be played at Houston on Wednesday, October 13th. The Houston Astros won the season series against the Chicago White Sox, winning five out of seven games. They swept the White Sox back in late June at Houston. But when they played in Chicago after the All-Star break, the White Sox won two out of three. The Houston Astros started pitching probables. This is not the set order. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But it sounds like for the Astros, they're going to have Lance McCullers make a start. They're going to have Framber Valdez make a start, the lefty. Luis Garcia, the rookie, could be making starts. And then Zach Greinke could also be making starts for the Houston Astros. And I want to start with the starting pitching for the Astros, Jim, because Lance McCullers, he made two starts against the White Sox, and he gave them a really, really tough time. Uh, McCullers in 28 starts this year, covering more than 162 innings, uh, went 13 and five for the Astros. He had a 27% strikeout rate, and just looking at his numbers, especially like against righties, 47.5% of the time he's throwing his sinker, 44% of the time he throws his slider. He's a two-pitch pitcher against righties. And righties do something against his fastball. They hit 245 and slug 404. But that slider, righties hit 130 against his slider. And they whiff 39% of the time. And then against lefties, he hates throwing velocity against lefties. He's throwing his curveball 49.5% of the time against lefties. And they are hitting 151 against that pitch. And then he throws his changeup the second most often against lefties, and they are hitting 184. And the reason he doesn't like his fastball against lefties, because lefties are hitting 421 with a 667 slugging percentage against the fastball. And on June 20th in Houston, like I mentioned, six innings pitched, two hits, two earned runs allowed. That was a home run by Jake Lamb. Four walks, four strikeouts. He was better in Chicago where he won that game that the Astros won at Guarantee Rate Field. Seven innings pitched, two hits, one earned run allowed, two walks, and he struck out 10. 13 innings against McCullers this season, Jim. Four hits. And out of these four starting pitchers, I think he's going to be the one that's the biggest headache for the White Sox offense. Looking at the, the series, it seems like the White Sox would be better off if this were seven games instead of five, just because he might be able to dilute the amount of McCullers. But uh, with facing him twice, I imagine, in the series, if it gets to that point, or at least they're going to have to beat him once, I think, put it that way. Um, yeah, If he's starting game one and starting game five, like they're going to have to win one of those games. So whether they outlast him, wait for the bullpen to come in, or uh, just somehow you know, hit him the way they did in the regular season, 
it's uh you know it's a tall task and the same thing with like garcia the one start they had against the white Sox is great so you know the, the kind of, it's the, i guess the theme of righties with good stuff getting the white Sox to not square them up you know hit them in the ground uh you know swing and miss not draw many walks uh not make impact contact the the one guy i, I think you know framber valdez I don't, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of you here, um, but when it comes to uh, his ground ball rate being like 70%, uh, just being an insane ground baller, like I thought, oh, that's trouble for the White Sox. But of the 12 homers he, he's allowed this year in 134 innings, the White Sox have hit three of them. Yep. So they've been able to elevate them the way that other teams haven't. So, you know, whether that means that, uh, you know, some regressions in store and Valdez will figure it out or whether it means the White Sox have seen him better than other teams have seen him. That's, I think, the the biggest question mark to me because it seems like, you know, Valdez will be a big part of their plans and the White Sox haven't been phased by him the way they've been phased against other guys with good sinkers. Yeah, the key to McCullers, to go back to him, the White Sox have to hit the sinker especially the lefties. When they see any velocity, they need to be looking for that pitch and they Mm -hmm. need to capitalize on it. The righties, do whatever you can, maybe draw some walks. It's going to be a tough night against McCullers. Uh, Garcia, as you mentioned, really good against righties this year. Righties have had a tough time. Lefties, though, have suddenly been destroying his four-seam fastball. He's been throwing his four-seamer against lefties 49% 49% of the time, Jim, and lefties are now hitting 346 with a 523 slugging percentage. So with Garcia on the mound, I have the key for that game is that Makata, Grandal, Garcia, and Sheets really have to come through for the White Sox offense because it looks like they're going to have a much easier time seeing that four-seamer than the righties. And Framber Valdez, excellent points that you've made. And it's, it's interesting because... Against lefties, he's just a two-pitch pitcher, sinker, curveball. Against righties, he'll flash his changeup. But his curveball numbers are just microscopic. Righties are only hitting 124, and they're slugging 182 against that pitch. Lefties are hitting 129 and slugging 258. So I wonder if you see any type of break from Valdez as it comes out of the hand. You just don't swing because <laughs> if even if it's in the strike zone, like if it's early in the count, like he's trying to spin a curveball for a first pitch strike, just let it go. Because if you do make contact, as you mentioned, with that insane high ground ball rate, you're going to get yourself out in the very first pitch of the at bat. And I wonder, you know, just as we talk about McCullers, Garcia and Valdez, you have to zero in on a specific pitch to beat these guys. And patience might be a big attribute that we have to pay attention to from the White Sox hitters in this series if they're going to find any success, at least against these three Astros starting pitchers. The one thing about McCullers, though, is I keep thinking about how he threw 24 consecutive curveballs. Yeah, he's not afraid to and do that. He, yeah. So I think, you know, I'm thinking of a guy like Gavin Sheets, who we've seen improve over the course of September. And have uh, the ability to um, you know, square up fastballs better. He's still not great at, uh, you know, I guess, adjusting his swing or timing up changes in velocity over the course of an at-bat, but he's faring a little bit better at surviving, fending off those pitches, and then getting the uh, fastball. Um, but when it comes to a guy like McCullers, who just won't, he might just refuse to show him the fastball. That's, I think, where the White Sox are going to be tested. 
by somebody like him who just is not afraid to, you know, and, and I think the, you know, Brent Strom and, uh, you know, Martin Maldonado and Jason Cash or whoever just is calling the pitches. Like they're not going to be, they're not going to feel the natural compulsion to throw a fastball just because they haven't in a while, unless they're just not locating anything else. Garcia against the White Sox on June 18th. The Astros won that game 2-1. to one. Carlos Rodon was terrific in that game against the Houston Astros, and that's when the Astros won that game late uh, as they put together some hits off Garrett Crochet. In that game, Garcia went seven innings, allowed seven hits, one earned run, two walks, and eight strikeouts. So nine base runners for the White Sox, but they only eked out one run. Hopefully, if they do get nine base runners against Garcia, they could do a lot better than a run. And then Valdez has faced the White Sox twice this year. In Houston, he went seven innings, allowed six hits, three runs. Two of them earned a home run to Andrew Vaughn, walking two, striking out five. And in Chicago, six and a third innings, seven hits allowed, four earned runs, two home runs by Yoan Makata and Tim Anderson, walking two and striking out four. Not a lot of strikeouts here uh, from Valdez Mm -hmm. in his two starts against the White Sox. So it's not... Against Valdez, the key that I have is ball in air. They got to elevate against Valdez to get the ball off the ground, and then they will find some success. Uh, Garcia, they need the lefties to come through, and then McCullers got to hit that sinker when you see it. Then there's Zach Greinke, and this is an odd season for Greinke, but maybe age regression is kicking in. He had a 17% strikeout rate. That is a career low by at least 5% in his career. And exit velocity, the average exit velocity against Reiki this year was 88.2 miles per hour. That's a career high. Lefties are doing nothing against Zach Reiki. Granke's throwing his four-seamer 44% of the time to lefties. They're hitting 217 against that pitch, slugging 391. He's throwing his change up 34% of the time. Lefties are hitting 198 and slugging 218 against that pitch. It's like hitting a brick. And then he's throwing his curveball 18% of the time where lefties are hitting 184 and slugging 388. Then the righties. He's throwing his four-seamer 38% of the time and right-handed hitters are hitting 295 and slugging 555 off Granke's four-seam. Slider, 24% of the time. Righties are hitting 250 with a 462 slugging percentage. And then he throws his curveball 15% of the time. And that's getting crushed as righties are hitting 299 and slugging 582. And then he throws his changeup 14% of the time, which is pretty much a brick as righties are hitting 224 and slugging 306. Granky needs to throw his changeup more often against righties. And it's odd. Because you see the name, and it's still a name brand. It's Zach Granke, Jim, and he has tremendous postseason experience. But against the Chicago White Sox team, where they have such dangerous right-handed hitters, do you think Dusty Baker is going to start Granke against the White Sox? And if he is, where do you put him in a position where he doesn't get blown up early, especially if it's an elimination game. Like, I feel like, I don't know if the Astros, and this might be surprising to say, should have Granky on the mound in an elimination game. No, Dusty Baker has, uh, 
made roundabout references to you know, the potential of Grinky being bullpen only for the uh, divisional series, just because not only uh, of the factors you mentioned and, and having the uh, you know, lack of success against righties, but also he's just been on the uh, injured list as of late. Uh, they can maybe argue that he's not stretched out, um, that he he was basically just activated before the end of the season. So I can see them just saying like, no, we'll hold off. We might need them for a seven game series, but for five, we're covered. So I think, I think that would be smart on the Astros part. Uh, Cause uh, McCullers, Garcia and Valdez. I think you get through a five game series and I'm, they have ridden McCullers hard in the past. So just based on past experience, I know that he missed the entire 2019 season due to injury. But he looks healthy. He looks strong. I could see McCullers make a couple of starts in this series. I think mentally, Jim, I'm just preparing for McCullers, Garcia, and Valdez to be the three starting pitchers against the White Sox in this five-game series. Yeah, maybe Jose Arquiti, too. He's looked fine in September, so he's a decent fourth option if they need one. Yeah, everything that I was reading, especially out of the athletic, was he could be part of the bullpen as well. And for the Astros bullpen, it is pretty strong in the back end because they traded for two closers before the deadline. Yumi Garcia, who was the former closer of the Miami Marlins, and then Kendall Graveman, who was the closer of the Seattle Mariners, uh, joined the Houston Astros. And I, I guess for the Astros bullpen... Strategy-wise, maybe Dusty Baker is only looking for five innings from his starters before handing off to the bullpen outside of McCullers. Uh, Just maybe limiting the exposure for both Garcia and Valdez before getting into that bullpen. But this is Dusty Baker. He has been known, especially in the postseason, to go a little bit too long with his starting rotation uh, and not going to the bullpen earlier how do you think Baker could manage as far as the pitching matchups and going from the starters to the bullpen in this series? I'm looking to see how he managed last year just because he did get a, a good seven games in against the Rays in that kind of high-pressure situation. I don't remember any fatal missteps pitching-wise. Like, I'm looking at the, the scores. Like, they held the Rays to 2-4-2-4-4-4-4 runs per game. Yeah, in and that seven game series, so it seemed like you know the the pitching wasn't the issue for the Rays, and and I you know when they're talking about you know Dusty and just his uh, evolution as a manager and being the you know <laughs> the guy we saw with the Cubs and and Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood and and running those guys out ragged, and then just over the course of his various jobs since with the Nationals and Reds, uh, just being better growing, you know, just, and, and getting, you know, with the times and all of a sudden now that he's a lame duck manager, he's not under contract for next year. You have a lot more people singing his praises and saying that, uh, yeah, we either, uh, yeah, I think it's partially, they underappreciated his strengths, even though his weaknesses were also very much, uh, you know, I guess in September and in October, very obvious, but his strengths, I think might've been underappreciated then. And his strengths are still strong now, and he's gotten better. And uh, in terms of just managing pitchers and, and distributing the workload better, so 
I think he's going to be managing to prove himself, um, you know, not out of his comfort zone, not doing anything critically wrong, but just the way he managed last year in the uh, ALCS is probably good practice for how he's going to handle it this year. So overall, against Houston pitching, looking at it from a White Sox offensive perspective, how do you like this matchup for White Sox hitters against the Astros pitching? I like it better than I liked it, say, in the first half. You know, now with Robert being back, now with, uh, you know, Gavin Sheets looking like he provides something from the left side. Uh, that helps a lot. Jimenez, I think, you know, he's close. He has some games where we think he's figured it out. But he's the one guy, I think, who still his bats are soft right now. And he's just not that imposing. And I think the combination of... Uh, Abreu, you know, when he's banged up and I guess he wasn't feeling great for the finale. So hopefully he's, you know, back full strength for the, uh, for game one. But I think there can be a cluster between Abreu when he's on hundred percent or kind of off his game and Jimenez still not being, uh, you know, at his best form. I think there's a chance that there could be, you know, a soft part of the White Sox lineup or a lineup, you know, part of the lineup that does not live up to its brand name, production however i i think there's a possibility that around that like i'm thinking with sheets uh helping the dh situation be more modular uh with adam angle hopefully being back and able to play when they want him to play um and then having tim anderson and yohan makata finishing the season strong there might be an opportunity to create runs around that even if i feel like a brio and jimenez right might not be like the at their best capacity to face good right-handed pitching like a lance mccullers well, for the White Sox, we know that it's going to be at least Lance Lynn, Lucas Giolito, and Dylan Cease. Tony La Russa, I don't know if he's playing a game right now with the media, not sounding <laughs> too confident about Carlos Rodon, but we'll see uh, where what Rodon, what his role is going to be in this five-game series against the Houston Astros. But the Astros' offense, I have seven hitters that. White Sox pitching is they're gonna really have to key on here. Uh, Jose Altuve, uh, always a threat in the seven games against the White Sox this year. Jose Altuve hit 250 with a 267 on base percentage, slug 429. He did hit a home run against the White Sox. Alex Bregman did not face the White Sox at all this season due to injury. The White Sox pitchers did a very good job against Jordan Alvarez. Alvarez only hit 231. With a 286 on base percentage slug, 269, he did not hit a home run in the seven games. Uh, Kyle Tucker, we talked about Tucker in a couple of podcasts ago, but Tucker only hit 273, just singles against the White Sox. Yuli Gurriel, I believe, won the batting title in the American League this year. He hit 286, but not for a lot of power. He just slugged 333 against the White Sox. And Carlos Correa, he hit two homers and he walked five times against the White Sox. So he had a 346 on base percentage and slugged 524, but he hit only 190. So when he hit the ball, it went far uh, and he walked plenty of times to get himself on base. And then there's Michael Brantley. Brantley hit 320 with a 370 on base percentage and slugged 720 against the White Sox, hitting two homers and driving in seven RBIs in the seven games against the White Sox. And when I look at this Astros offense, Jim, the big key to the series that I have is the White Sox have to find a way to neutralize Michael Brantley because it looks like he's going to be batting second in this lineup behind Jose Altuve 
And Otuve is always a threat, especially to go deep. But if Brantley continues to wreck the White Sox pitchers, uh, it just makes it an incredibly difficult time for them because if he's constantly getting on base and if he's hitting extra bases, then you got Bregman and Correa and Alvarez and Gurriel and Tucker, and that's how you get into big innings. I feel like the White Sox have to find a way to neutralize Michael Brantley. Yeah, he might be a good, you know, one hitter to key on, but as you mentioned, just seven guys. <laughs> that's what makes it tough. You can't do the don't let somebody beat you. I mean, you can say that about Michael Brantley, but I mean, then you're going to say that about Alex Bregman. Like, don't let Alex Bregman beat you because he's Alex Bregman. And same thing with Jose Altuve, who's a, he's Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa is Carlos Correa. So that's, I mean, that's why they're the Astros. That's why they won. You can all, I mean, you can say what they did about winning the World Series and such, but. Even after the scandal, the talent's there. The talent, they've swapped some guys out, swapped some guys in. They've developed a guy like Tucker. They've you know, changed up their center field situation a bit. But ultimately, like that talent is still producing. They're still great at working at bats, like a great combination of drawing walks and avoiding strikeouts. I'm looking at their strikeout rate right now just to see where, where they are. Yeah, the... Uh, Third best strikeout rate. They're no longer the top team at avoiding strikeouts. That's the Blue Jays, but they're third. Uh, and, and they have the best walk rate of any of those teams. Uh, they lead the, uh, let's see, they're yeah, second in average, uh, second in OPP. Like it's just, it's a, uh, and I'm looking at the second half stats um, just to see what they've looked like since Tucker has become Tucker and Bregman's back. And yeah, they're just, they're the Astros. I mean, they just work really tough at bats. So it's going to be a top to bottom pitching staff effort, I think. It's going to be, um, you know, for Tony La Russa being proactive about having the bullpen ready, about having, um, you know, maybe two innings of Liam Hendricks rather than worrying about Craig Kimbrell in the eighth. Uh, it's going to take their best guys and, and, and being very judicious about third time through, uh, making sure that uh, you don't let conventions get in the way of falling into traps. Um, but hopefully, you know, just... With Larusa, this is why they wanted him. This is why they wanted to get away from Rick Renteria, who was very uh, traditional about starting pitcher duties and and uh, inflexible about alternative starter arrangements. And you know, with uh, you know Don Cooper out and with Ethan Katz in, this is what they're here for: to have a plan for this kind of lineup and making sure that they don't ask too much from one guy. Who do we think will win this series and how far will the White Sox go this postseason? We're going to make you wait just a little bit longer as we'll be sharing our postseason picks after a quick word from our sponsors on the Sox Machine podcast. Welcome back to the Sox Machine podcast. And I'm sorry, guys, for the tease, but finally we're going to make our postseason picks after our deep dive into the White Sox versus Astros series preview and what the keys will be for the White Sox against the Astros starting pitching and the White Sox pitchers against the Astros lineup. We're going to start in the American League with our postseason picks. And you did really well last year, Jim, uh, with the postseason picks. Looking back, uh, I was I, I had my preseason pick correct, the Dodgers and Rays. Uh, even though I thought the Rays were going to win the World Series, it did not happen. So let's see how we fare in this postseason with our picks. And we're going to start with the American League Wild Card. This game is going to be played Tuesday night at Fenway. It's the Yankees and Red Sox. And Jim, who do you like to win the American League Wild Card game? 
I've been skeptical about the Yankees all year, so I'm not going to stop now. So I'm going to say Red Sox. All right. We already differ. I think the Yankees are going to win. And the reason I'm confident in the Yankees is the way that they played at Fenway a few weeks ago. And I just, I can't get a good feeling on the Red Sox. And they got some injury news as well. This just coming down the newswire that J.D. Martinez is not going to be available for the wildcard game due to injury. Tripped over second base. (laughs) What was that? I think he tripped over second base. Was that the injury? Yeah. Base running blunder. Uh, so, but you have the Red Sox winning at home, and I've got the Yankees. So, going into that ALDS, you got Red Sox versus Rays. Who do you like in that series? Tampa. Yeah. And even if we're the Yankees, like that's why I'm just like, eh, whoever wins, I think the Rays are equipped to beat them. I got a feeling the Rays are going to sweep. Mm. Like they just look very prepared for any team in the American League East this year. Yeah, they handled it, especially since you remember with the Blake Snell trade, they were theoretically taking a step back. Yes. So, yeah, it's a dangerous team. Yeah, they, they pitched so well against the Yankees in the Bronx uh, this the last weekend of the season. Uh, they held the Yankees to just one run. They lost that game one to nothing. Uh, I You know, offensively, they can be feast or famine, but the way that the run prevention... As far as their defense, along with the pitching works, the, the Rays are incredibly tough. And I don't think the Red Sox or Yankees are going to be able to beat the Rays in the American League Divisional Series. So when it comes to the ALCS, uh, we both have the Tampa Bay Rays in this ALCS. So we're not going to wait, make anyone wait any longer here. The Houston Astros and the Chicago White Sox in the American League Divisional Series. Who is your pick, Jim? I'm going White Sox. All right. And we're going to be homers here because uh, I'm also picking the White Sox. Uh, if you had to make a game prediction, well, maybe not a game prediction. Just make a series prediction. How do you think this series is going to play out? It feels like a fiver. Um, and it's going to feel like one team is going to have to do something out of their comfort zone when it comes to pitchers, whether it's like Lance Lynn pitching on uh, twice when he hasn't pitched uh, on regular rest all month or Lucas Giolito pitching on short rest. Uh, You know, we talked about the Astros various uh, pitching complications, depending on what they want to do at the fourth spot or whether they go to McCullers early. Uh, It's going to be, it's going to be fun, I think. And it does feel a little bit homerish, but the way I look at it is, you know, I've, I've talked about how it's important for the White Sox to win a postseason series just to keep this going, to keep the excitement going, to uh, stimulate ticket sales and excitement for next year, feeling like uh, that they're only going to be building further. Um, and I just don't see a reason, you know, for all the reasons we have for uh, the White Sox to be afraid of the Astros. I think the Astros have reasons to be afraid of the White Sox. So I feel like this is a little bit of self-actualization here where uh, you got to believe you can do it before you do it. Fake it till you make it type thing. And I think the White Sox uh, can do it. And I think uh, a lot of baseball is going to be pulling for them, partially because it's the Astros and nobody likes the Astros, but also just because the White Sox have the kind of talent that, you know, like Luis Robert hitting a 117 mile per hour homer and uh, Tim Anderson doing Tim Anderson things on the base paths. Uh, They can, you know, like they delivered in the field of dreams games, they can do it on 
a postseason stage as well. And I just want to see them do it. I want to see it so badly that I'm picking them. I think this series ends on Monday, October 11th. It won't go to game five. And I have the White Sox winning this series in four games. I don't think they're going to win game one if McCullers is on the mound. And that's fine. I have them winning the next three games. Because even if you're going to be going up against McCullers on short rest, I don't know how efficient McCullers is going to be on short rest, especially coming off his injury. If this was pre-2019 McCullers, then yeah, he's going to be a monster like he was for the 2017 Astros winning the World Series. Uh, But I don't think this series is going to Game 5. This series is ending in Chicago one way or another. Uh, and I, I'm going to have the White Sox winning games two, three, and four because they're just such a dominant team at home. I think if they're going to throw Valdez in game two, that's the game that the White Sox are going to steal in Houston. And it's going to be one rocking party Monday night. Uh, I don't think anyone will want to go home, even though it's a school night. Uh, at the guarantee rate field, we'll see what game times are and we'll share those when we get them. We still don't have them. Um, but yeah, we both have the White Sox beating the Houston Astros and advancing to the American League CS to face the Tampa Bay Rays. How do you think a White Sox Rays series would play out, Jim? This is where I have the train stopping and the Rays winning. It just, it feels like when it comes to at least the American League, that the Rays top down, not only when it comes to like their roster, but Seeing what they did in the minor leagues this year uh, at every level, like setting records for a winning percentage for minor league teams and seeing Durham, uh, even though like a lot of Durham's top prospects are in uh, Tampa, uh, seeing Durham go nine and one in that uh, final stretch concept over the last 10 games, just, it seems like the Rays have just perfected baseball right now. Just, uh, top to bottom. So that's why it feels like that's just a little bit too tall in order right now for the White Sox to beat them over the course of seven games. That's a case yeah. where I, I would say like they might stand a chance of beating them over five or like I'd give them a better chance. I mean, they always have a chance, but just they have a better chance of doing it over five games because, you know, smaller sample size, weirder things can happen. But over seven, that's, I think, where the depth can win out. Yeah, I have the White Sox losing in six to the Rays in the American League Championship Series. The pitching is going to be tough. We saw on how the series played out and the two teams split the season series. And I think the White Sox can definitely win at home against Tampa Bay because the offense just performs a lot better at home than it does away this season. And I don't have a good explanation why the White Sox are just not hitting all that well on the road. But the Rays pitching is so good. And this is a team built for chaos. Who cares if Michael Waka is starting a game? You're only going to see Michael Waka once through the lineup. And if you don't take advantage of that first at bat, if you don't jump on these Rays starters, you're going to face the Rays bullpen. And this bullpen has been extremely uh, shut down for the Rays this season, especially late. And this offense is also an offense that knows the pressures of hitting the American League and they can hit for power and they do not mind running. And boy, I know you're going to write about this later this week for Sox Machine, but 
I, I'd just be really scared as far as how the Rays base runners do against the White Sox starting pitchers who don't do a very good job of holding runners on base. And that's where I see the train stopping is in the American League Championship Series against the Tampa Bay Rays. And the conversation that we're going to be having in the offseason is, all right, what do the White Sox need to do and or what areas do they need to improve upon to get past the race because it's just not this season, but also next season. I still think the Tampa Bay Rays are going to be one of the teams to beat in the American league. All right. So Jim and I both have the Tampa Bay Rays winning the American league pennant. Uh, Hopefully you don't stop listening to this and start yelling at your phone or your tablet or your computer or your car radio. Let's move over to the National League. The National League wildcard, Dodgers and St. Louis Cardinals. Who do you like winning in that one-game playoff, Jim? I like the Dodgers. See, I'm going to go different. I'm going to go with the Cardinals. Okay. I'm going to go with the hot hand and chaos. I know everybody would love to see Dodgers and Giants, but I'm going to go with the Cardinals. I think they will make that upset. So the National League Divisional Series, you have Dodgers and Giants. Who do you like in that National League Divisional Series. I have the Giants. I want to see the series to just follow up or, you know, I guess, uh, tie up that loose end of just how impressive that pennant race was between the two teams. I want to see them go one more time, get greedy. But I do like the Giants. I feel like the Dodgers, just with the Max Muncy injury, with Clayton Kershaw uh, being out, uh, just feels like they might finally after eight years and three straight pennants in a World Series last year, just might have to pay for the workload they've um, you know, just had to endure over the course of so many long seasons. All right, then in the National League Divi- other National League Divisional Series, the Milwaukee Brewers and the Atlanta Braves. Who do you like in that series? Brewers. See, I'm going Braves. Hmm. And the reason is Milwaukee starting pitching is awesome. And even losing Devin Williams does hurt the bullpen, but they still got Josh Hader. I'm a bit worried about this offense and the Braves can hit. And I wonder what happens to Milwaukee. If like Ozzie Elbies or Freddie Freeman, if they hit a home run off Corbin Burns, how do the Brewers react? And this is a Braves team without Ronald Acuna. That is a, that's a big factor. But they were just one game away, and they really challenged the Dodgers last year uh, in the postseason. They're just one game away from the World Series. I think the Braves' offense is the difference here, and that's why I've got the Braves beating the Brewers and advancing to the National League Championship Series. So you got hmm, I- Giants and Brewers... Yes. And I have Giants and Braves. So who do you like between the Giants and Brewers? This is, I guess, we're going to differ further because I still like the Brewers. You still like the Brewers. So you got Rays versus Brewers. In a matchup for the TV ratings everybody will love (laughs) and make a big deal about. But baseball fans who don't care about such things will actually enjoy Yes, very true. I have the Giants. I think you're going to... I'm going chalk with the postseason picks, both number one seeds. Uh, I'm going to go Rays and Giants uh, in the World Series. 
And I guess between the Rays and Brewers, uh, this is a unique matchup because neither franchise has ever won a World Series. Uh, so someone's winning their first World Series if your predictions come true, Jim. Who do you think wins the 2021 World Series? I think Milwaukee. And just uh, when it comes to their balance between starters and bullpen, that's what, that's what yeah appeals to me about how they're built. I know their offense is kind of unimpressive, but I think um, sometimes unimpressive offenses get the job done. Like if they can hit homers, uh, if they can run into one, sometimes that's all that's necessary. And thinking about like the way the Rays have operated and some other teams that have been like bullpen heavy, sometimes they just run out of gas by the end, uh, run out of options. Just so many games where the pitcher only goes one time through. Uh, you know, Kevin Cash has to hit all the right buttons and sometimes it just doesn't work out. Whereas I think with just how strong their starting pitching staff is for Milwaukee, I think it allows the workload to be distributed pretty well, even with Devin Williams being out to where they can get by uh, without any one pitcher being especially fatigued or overexposed. I'm going to go with the San Francisco Giants and the magic that they have this year winning the World Series. It's hard to explain on how this Giants team that a lot of preseason predictions had them around 75 wins have overachieved so much, but there's a lot of World Series experience on this team. Buster Posey, mm -hmm. Brandon Crawford. Uh, you add Chris Bryant into the lineup. They're Offensively, they're just getting contributions from everyone this season. And I don't think the magic is going to end for the San Francisco Giants this year. And I have the Giants being the Tampa Bay Rays in the World Series. And this has been one heck of a decade of baseball for the San Francisco Giants, right? What they won in 2010, 2012, and 2014, mm -hmm. and then winning in 2021. There's a gap there, but I mean, for someone like Buster Posey to add another World Series ring, I think helps elevate his Hall of Fame chances or his chances of making the Hall of Fame one day. And I don't know what's going to happen to the Giants next year. I think they may have a lot of money to spend to try to improve on a 107-win team. But I'm, I'm going to ride the magic carpet. I'm going to have the San Francisco Giants win the World Series. I think if Brandon Belt were still healthy, I would go chalk too. That's just the one thing that makes me wonder, you know, whether – their offensive formula can still work. So he was, you know, they, they've, they've succeeded by hitting a lot of homers <laughs> from a lot of different guys. Uh, but having belt, you know, their team leader in homers and, and the one guy who is, you know, on a 40 homer pace, they, they've distributed the power very well around their lineup, which is, you know, good and bad, good. And, and that, um, you know, they, they can get homers from a lot of different sources, bad in that, like, you know, maybe they don't have the one guy who can, you can count on to do it in a big spot against really good pitching staffs. Uh, that's, you know, if I were trying to nitpick and uh, pick a reason to uh, not go chalk, it feels like that's the one hitter they could least afford to lose just how well he was putting it all together. So that's why I, I think, you know, I just something about this says, you know, maybe I just don't want to pick the giants or maybe it's so obvious that it feels like, well, you can't pick the giants because that never happens. You know, it's, they went chalk last year. It's not going to go chalk two years in a row. So that's kind of, uh, I'm, I'm facing a little bit of resistance internally that way. And I think if it's not going to go chalk, uh, 
the Brewers and their balance between starters and relievers is going to be the way to do it. Well, I got your Brewers losing the divisional series, so. <laughs> yep. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. I just, uh, just yeah, the Braves just haven't impressed me. No, no, but again. I, I think they would be more impressive, like, with, you know, uh, you know, a full season of Acuna and such. Like, maybe that's one reason I'm underselling them a little bit, is they have, you know, fared okay without their, you know, best player for a lot of the season, but... The Brewers' offense just worries me. That's that's a concern. And we'll see how they do. We'll see how they do. But Jim and I have a National League team winning the World Series, and we'd love to hear your guys' World Series predictions as well on SoxMachine.com. Put your World Series predictions in the comments below of this post on SoxMachine.com. And uh, we'll see on how everybody does with their postseason predictions. But Jim and I have the White Sox going to the American League Championship Series to face the Tampa Bay Rays. Now it's time to answer your guys' questions next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where our Patreon supporters fill up our mailbag this week. So we'll be answering questions from our Patreon supporters. If you are not a Patreon supporter, you can be at patreon.com slash machine. The first question that we have comes from Trooper Galactus. And Trooper is asking, Jim, how do the White Sox stack up against other American League playoff teams Pitching-wise, it feels like their bullpen never really got sorted out, and their once-vaunted starting rotation is falling apart, but other teams have their own struggles, so I'm not sure if these problems are unique. Uh, They're not unique, but the bar is high for American League pitching. Like There aren't really any teams that have lucked into it, uh, especially when it comes to the bullpen. Uh, the, the Yankees have the third best bullpen, when it, according to fan graphs. Uh, the, the Rays are number one. The Astros did improve to be a top half uh, bullpen The uh, when it comes to the just major league as a whole. And then the Red Sox are top 10. So all these teams have built uh, worthy pitching staffs, uh, just when it comes to run prevention and run differential, they're all pretty much in the conversation. I think the Yankees are stronger. They've gotten by with uh, very little offense. Like uh, when it comes to just figuring out how these teams are built, Pythagorean records and all that, uh, the they're all strong. Like the, Red, the Rays are strong. The Astros are strong. The Red Sox are pretty strong. The Yankees are the one, as you mentioned, overperformed their uh, Pythag record. And if they're going to lose, it seems like they're going to lose by just not scoring. The offense not showing up. So the pitching staffs are deep. I would say that the White Sox, uh, their pitching staff, I think, is mostly intact. Or I think I have a, a rosier view of it than, than you do when it comes to the shape of it. I think the only weak link when it comes to the rotation in terms of like falling apart or not being in tip-top shape or good enough shape for September, October is Carlos Rodon. I think Lynn's back pretty much to where he was. Giolito's back to where he was. Cease has been uh, pretty stable all season. Um, and, and really, Rodon is the only one who's actively wearing signs of distress in the mound. And when it comes to the bullpen, 
uh, you know, Tapera looked good. You know, he, he was somebody to worry about. Bummers looked great. Uh, Hendricks has looked great. Kopech has looked pretty good. Uh, Crochet's looked pretty good. So I think when you look at the responsibilities they'll be tasked with, I think the only thing to worry about is Craig Kimbrell in the eighth or in the seventh, whenever they decide to pitch him, what they decide to task him with or Tapera, because we just only have a sample size of two with Tapera after his injury, his uh, finger slice. But either way, I think it just speaks to the quality of the pitching staffs that those feel like crises. Uh, but if they come back, uh, you know, or if they just you know, maintain their comebacks in the way of Lynn and Giolito and the way Tapera looked his last time out, I think the White Sox can pitch with them. I think it's going to be fine. I think when it comes to the White Sox and their flaws, I think it's more of a matter of can they get the ball off the ground. Good point, Jim. Yeah, I think ball go far, team go far this postseason. And the White Sox offense is going to have to hit the ball far. They're going to get past the Houston Astros and make it to the American League Championship Series. But Trooper, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew is asking, what is your assessment of how much Adam Engel will be an option in right field? And how does that affect where Lurie Garcia will play and where if Cesar Hernandez will play? And who is the backup infielder? Well, it seems like... The, the way he played and the way he ran and the way he played center field uh, with Robert DHing in the last game of the season, I'm hoping that means that Angle will be available, um, you know, hopefully all five games. Like when you look at the way the roster is constructed um, and just who's been performing and who hasn't been performing, it still seems like the best, the optimal lineup has Angle playing right field every day, no matter what. Against righties, against lefties, uh, just the difference between um you know him against righties and everybody else and then you factor in his defense just he's the strongest play out there uh, Garcia kind of made a, a mess of right field uh on Sunday uh misplaying three different balls so <laughs> I don't know if that's another thing like you know talking about Dallas Keuchel and how he you know clarified matters with his per- poor performance I'm hoping that with Angle playing center and and running the base as well coming through with a double and with Garcia making you know, three miscues and right, I'm hoping, you know, fingers crossed that that means that angle can show up and play every day in right field. And then I think that just makes, you know, second base more of a matter of Cesar Hernandez, probably for you know, plan a with Garcia backing him up and Garcia backing a lot of positions up because I think he could be maybe the one utility infielder, the, the one backup infielder, and, and having seen Andrew Vaughn play a little bit of third, play at second, he would be the emergency option if need be for more uh, depth in the infield. But otherwise, Garcia would be the guy to back up all those positions to me. Well, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Ed Casey. And Ed is asking, the White Sox finished 28th in minor league baseball winning percentage this year. I did not know it was that good. <laughs> In 2019, their minor league baseball winning percentage was 19th. I know minor league wins and losses are secondary to player development. That being said, are there any changes that you would like to see the White Sox make in their player development farm system this offseason? Well, you know, it's they had a really weird year because, yeah, thank, thank goodness for the Birmingham Barons, uh, the one team that kept the White Sox, I think, out of the organizational cellar. Uh, wins and losses wise because yeah, everybody else really underperformed um, but when it comes to the the top prospects 
Like the White Sox didn't have a bad year. When you look at like the top, you know, 20 prospects and the position players therein, really like Blake Rutherford's the only guy who had a bad year. Um, you know, when you think of guys like, you know, Romy Gonzalez coming out of nowhere uh, and helping offset the lack of development from uh, Rutherford, that's fine. Luis Gonzalez had a good year or is getting to, uh, to the point that he was having a decent year till he got hurt. Um, but Mike Rodolfo was fine. Jake Berger was surprisingly good. Gavin Cheats, surprisingly good. Uh, Lennon Sosa, Jose Rodriguez, Brian Ramos, Yolki Yo- Cespedes, like, you know, when you look at all these uh, you know, players you're hoping would have good seasons, pretty much all of them did, um, by and large. So you know, it doesn't feel like the White Sox should have had that kind of record. I think the two shortcomings are, um, you know, one, the pitching, just you know, really uh, the lack of uh, you know, pitching depth in the top levels materializing to where Mike Wright was the most rosterable guy to provide innings. Like, Stever got hurt, but even before he got hurt, he was having a, a down season. Jimmy Lambert couldn't quite put it all together, although he got some auditions. Like, it was Lopez and it was Wright being the most rosterable guys at the end of the year. Cade McClure had a good year relative to his standards, but, uh, you know, they traded Connor Pilkington, so really McClure is the one guy from that uh, Birmingham um, you know, rotation who's in position to really help uh, I, I think maybe next year, and even then he profiles as a back-end guy. But just the pitchers beneath, like you know Matthew Thompson, Andrew Dahlquist, Jared Kelly, all had bad seasons. Thompson showed a little bit at the end, but really just it was about surviving and hoping that they learned a lot from uh, spending all the year in Kannapolis. Like They need to figure out the pitching situation and uh, assess just why they're not getting um, you know, swings and misses enough or, or why they're not developing... Um, their, their top prospects, why they're stalling. And then I think when it comes to the position players, like the top guys are performing well, but really having problems with walks and strikeouts. Um, I think that problem is what led them to that very college heavy period where they were drafting guys like Berger and Sheets, but also guys like Alex Call and Jamison Fisher, like these low uh, athleticism, low ceiling, high floor guys who wouldn't look so overmatched at the low levels. I think that's why they fell into that rut there, just because they had a lot of walks and strikeout problems, and they still have that this year. Like just, uh, especially at uh, like Winston Salem, like when guys like Cespedes and Sosa and um, Yolbert Sanchez, another guy with a good year, but when they didn't hit that game, they just couldn't sustain offense anywhere else because they didn't draw walks and everybody else struck out. That was also the problem in Canapolis when it was Jose Rodriguez not having a great game, or even if he did, like Brian Ramos. If he didn't show up, like nobody in the offense was going to, they might go one for four, three strikeouts. DJ Gladney, uh, Kaberry Weaver, or that, that tier of prospects just had so much problems making contact to where that feels like the thing they have to shore up uh, is either helping guys iron out swings or evaluating hit tools without giving up athleticism. That seems to be the... The next stumbling block, because when you see just like what the Rays do and what other teams do, like the Dodgers do, like there's got to be a way to do it that the White Sox aren't doing. And I know they've made inroads and strides into introducing more analytics, more you know, hitting lab, pitching lab. So much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, you're going to want to hold on to it for a while. Because this is our last routine Monday podcast. We're moving into postseason mode. 
So what can you expect later this week? Well, there will be another podcast released on Wednesday, October 6th. We're going to have some national media folks join us and they're going to give their thoughts about the White Sox and the White Sox chances against the Houston Astros. And they'll share how far they think the Chicago White Sox would go in this year's postseason. Uh, So look forward on that on Wednesday morning, October 6th to hit the podcast feed. And then Jim and I will be recapping each of the postseason games. Uh, So think of it like your White Sox wake up calls. Uh, So again, the White Sox play on Thursday, October 7th. There'll be a new podcast for you on October 8th. And with the White Sox playing Friday on October 8th, there'll be a new podcast for you guys on October 9th to recap that game and preview the next one as we'll be recapping all the big moments and reviewing the critical decisions made in these postseason games. So that's what you have to look forward to, at least in this upcoming series of the American League Divisional Series. And then we'll share with you guys what our offseason plans are going to be uh, for the podcast. And uh, yeah, with the CBA expiring, that's a news item in itself. And that kind of ruffles as far as on how the offseason will go. But we do have a plan. We'll just share it when things become a little bit more concrete. And one of those concrete things is game times. Once we do get them, everyone's been asking We will have those ready for you guys on SoxMachine.com when we do receive what the game times will be for the Chicago White Sox and the Houston Astros. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, if you are not a Patreon supporter, I highly recommend to do it because our Patreon supporters get ad-free versions of the podcast and website. They get exclusive and bonus content like bonus P.O. Socks and our Patreon supporters because they continue to fill up our P.O. Socks mailbag with so many questions. That's the best way to be able to ask questions and send in topics is by becoming a Patreon supporter. And you could do that at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. Do you have any Patreon supporters you want to shout out, Jim? Yes. Uh, thank you to Kyle White for signing up uh, and, and supporting us uh, this week. So thank you uh, to Kyle. And also you know to go back to the day one supporters, uh, thanks to Andy Wilkinson and Josh Dyer, who signed up way back on January 1st, 2018. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Josh. And thanks, Kyle, for joining us. And again, like I said, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. We also have a YouTube page that you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. And you can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. As the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place the elites in charge say everything's fine stop noticing but you know better and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos my patriot supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company americans trust to prepare 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.